Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Good storytelling often involves a plot twist. In fact, it can make or break a movie. And we've all seen movies with bad plot twists like, I don't know, insert any Nicolas Cage movie here. Like this one I saw where all these crazy things happen and in the end it was aliens the whole time even though they didn't mention aliens at any point up to that in the story. Or or any movie where all these crazy things happen and in the end it was all just a dream. But a good plot twist can make your jaw drop. Like Bruce Willis was dead the whole time or Kevin Spacey was Kaiser Soze or when we found out that Hans was the bad guy in Frozen. And if I ruined any of these movies for you, I'm sorry, but the newest one was 2013, and I'm pretty sure that's past the statute of limitations on spoilers. But a good plot twist, as it unfolds, you can look back and see what the storyteller was doing the whole time, even if you missed it the first time. And tonight, we're in the plot twist portion of the book of Isaiah. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Isaiah 53. And up to this point, Isaiah has been bringing a message from God to the people of Judah. Part of that message is a message of judgment. The people will be punished for their sins. But that's not the whole story. He also brings a message of salvation. Yes, they're going to be punished. Yes, they will be judged and brought into exile. But God is going to bring salvation. One of the recurring themes in the book of Isaiah is God's power to save. And it's represented by this phrase, the arm of the Lord. What do you think of when you hear that phrase, the arm of the Lord? You might think of God's muscular arm in the painting from the Sistine Chapel. Or maybe you think about the guy from the movie Thor. Or maybe you think of my arms because, you know, me and that guy from Thor, we're we're basically the same guy. But let's take a look to Isaiah 53 and see how God's power is displayed through his servant, who we now know to be Jesus. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom, from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. At Christ Community Church, we like to thank God for speaking to us through his word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now up to this point, You might imagine that people heard this phrase, the arm of the Lord, and it would have evoked imagery of a coming, mighty, conquering king. One who would show up on the scene and make things right by force. And here Isaiah introduces a major plot twist because the people of Israel, their view of salvation was much too narrow. In their minds, they needed saving from their conquerors and from exile. And they can't quite see what God is up to. I mean, it's clear in this passage that people would miss it. Look what Isaiah says again in verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then further in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. 
He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Jesus came as God's servant to bring salvation to all mankind. And how did we receive him? We didn't. We didn't recognize him. We despised him, rejected him, held him in low esteem. And at first glance, honestly, this verse seems a little unrelatable to me. I can't relate to this idea of despising Jesus. Even when I was far from him, I can't, I can't imagine using those words. And I've rarely met people who would. But the Hebrew word that we translate as despise doesn't have quite the emotional weight that we associate with that word. Isaiah scholar John Oswald says, it means to consider something or someone to be worthless, unworthy of attention. And that's much more relatable to me. You know, sometimes we treat Jesus as an inconvenience because inviting him into our lives means disrupting our own agenda. It changes what's important to us and he challenges us to see our sins and our flaws. And honestly, sometimes it's just easier to ignore. Even more than that, every time we sin, we reject him. Or as Isaiah puts it, we hide our faces from him. We disregard his word, even though we know what is right. As hard as it is to hear, it's important that we see ourselves in this verse. We are among those who have despised and rejected him. And the result of all this rejecting of Jesus is a damaged world. Romans 8 tells us that all of creation is broken by sin. And each one of us is a perpetrator because of the sin that we contribute. And at the same time, we're all victims as our own sin. The sins of others cause us great pain and suffering. And there's not always even a clear culprit to point to when things go wrong because the whole world is impacted by the power of sin. And that's as clear now as it's ever been. I mean, we're seeing people get sick and we're seeing people grieve. We're seeing people lose jobs. And it's not just individuals. Think of the collective universal fear and uncertainty, the mourning that is going on all around us. And we're reminded of just how broken the world is. But look at what Isaiah says in verse four. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. This is what Jesus, the servant, came to do. He came to display the power of God to relieve the world, you and me, of our pain and suffering. And how did he do it? Well, that, that first Holy Week shows us the ultimate plot twist that while we might expect to see the arm of the Lord revealed in dominating power, instead we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, overwhelmed and crying out to God. We might expect to see God display his power by fighting back, but instead we see, we see Jesus peacefully surrendering to the authorities who came to arrest him. We see the judge of the world sit under the judgment of sinful humans as he's put on trial and sentenced to death. We see the king of the universe adorned with a crown of thorns, beaten and mocked. We see the giver of life put to death on a cross that first Good Friday. And brothers and sisters, many of us need to hear this tonight. Maybe you've gone through something so painful. Maybe you're going through something so painful right now. And sometimes when we go through these things, it can be so dark that it's natural to think, I can't see Jesus in this at all. You know, we associate God with the good times because that's where it's easy to see his love and his power. 
And maybe you're thinking, there is no way he's here with me in this right now. But remember the servant who is familiar with pain. In the depths of your hurt and sorrow, Jesus will meet you there because he has been there. He draws near, he bears our burdens, and he's working in it somehow. Remember that when the saving power of God showed up, it surprisingly looked like a man rejected and suffering. Isaiah says that it's in our nature to turn away in the face of such suffering, to hide our faces, but let's not do that. The band is going to sing a song right now, and as they do, let's not look away, but instead let's reflect on what Jesus has done for us, what he bore on the cross for you and me. The suffering of Jesus was always the plan. It was not a mistake. Jesus suffered and died, even though he was innocent. Isaiah 53, 9 says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. There were no actions or words that would indicate that Jesus had done something wrong. No violence. No words with a lack of integrity. The only blood on Jesus' hands was his own. We know from the Old Testament that God's justice required the shedding of innocent blood to pay the price for sin. Which is why a sinless man eventually would have to die to pay the sin penalty for all of humankind. We're going to contrast the servant's sinlessness with those who are guilty. Eric just talked about how we despise Jesus. Another way we consider Jesus to be worthless is to minimize our ownership of the consequences of sin. There's a lot of people who have not yet surrendered their life to Christ who would agree with what Isaiah says in verse 4. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Many people throughout history have acknowledged that Jesus lived and then died a tragic death. He was a good man who was a little misguided or a victim of circumstance. Still, other people have stated that Jesus had delusions of grandeur and destiny, and this was driven by a sense of nobility, that dying was a good thing to do. In fact, Jesus died because his followers expected him to do it, and he was just meeting their expectations. It's what's known as a Messiah complex. All of these conclusions agree that Jesus was a good man and that he suffered. The question is, why? And as if anticipating that we would be asking the question because we would not understand why the sinless servant would suffer Isaiah gives us verse 5, which says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Notice the repeating phrases that point out how we need to own our part in this. The sinless servant was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. Our, our, us, and we. Isaiah is clearly stating that we are at fault here. 
It is our transgressions, our iniquities that put Jesus on the cross. He was crushed and wounded for us. And yet you might be like me. When I get blamed, I tend to rationalize. Even though I'm in this group, I don't really want to admit it's my fault. When I was a kid, I loved playing kickball at camp. And I was that really bad teammate who when I would get on base and I would see a kid come up to bat who was not going to do a good job kicking the ball, I would just, I would yell out, oh great, Stanley's up, we're going to lose now. And when Stanley would eventually kick the ball and get out, I would blame him. I was a lousy teammate. I couldn't take credit that it was our loss. I couldn't own that. I had to blame my teammates because I couldn't handle taking the blame. There was always an excuse. I just didn't want to admit that I was wrong. Maybe there's a place in your life where you can relate to that as well. Again, Isaiah seemed to anticipate that I, or we, would not take ownership for our sin. So he wrote in verse 6, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice how many times we are mentioned. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We can't get off the hook. To use my previous analogy, every one of us is on the losing team, and we've all contributed to the loss. Each and every one of us. When you were a kid, did you ever get lost? It seems like there's a process to getting lost that comes in stages. At first, you're with the group that you're supposed to be with, and everything's going fine. And then something somewhere distracts you, whether it's a balloon in the sky or a window display, and you just slow down and lose touch with what you're supposed to be focused on, and here you are in your own little world, and then something snaps you back to reality, and you look around, and where is everyone? And you look for what's familiar, and there's an initial moment of panic, but it gets worse if you can't find that familiar face. Now you're lost. Now you're in danger. What do you do? We've all done this with sin, haven't we? We start innocently with something and we wander off the road and then we realize we find ourselves lost and in danger. What does lost and afraid look like to you? Perhaps this is that moment of awareness for you. You've made a mess. Maybe it's broken relationships or an enslaved habit. Maybe you could keep on going and keep doing what you're doing, try to power through, or perhaps you know there is a place where deep down you aren't where you should be. What if you could lean in and do the hard work right now of admitting to God that you are lost and see what he could do? There's no getting away from it. We all have gone astray. Like sheep, each of us have wandered off and turned to our own way. Let's look again at verse 5. But this time, don't look at us. Look at him, the sinless servant who sacrificed for us. He was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. He traded places with us. The righteous for the unrighteous. The sinless for the guilty. When we look at Jesus, we should be looking at the one who saves us amidst all the distractions when we get lost. He is the only one who can rescue us. Jesus is the sinless servant who suffered because we were lost. Before we continue in our service, we're going to take a few moments to have a time of confession. And in this time, I want to invite you to lean in. Come to God and ask this question of yourself. What do I need to own? How did I go astray? No more excuses. Confess to Jesus and ask him to forgive you. Let me read to you again from Isaiah 53. I'm going to start at the end of verse 9. He had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. And yet he suffered for our sin. That's the main idea tonight. But I wonder how many of you, when you hear that, have the same question that I do. How in the world is that fair? It almost doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus be allowed to suffer in our place, to take our punishment? It doesn't seem fair for one thing because it seems like it's punishing a random person. If you get arrested, you can't just grab someone off the street and say, well, punish them. At least you get your punishment. And it seems like it's punishing an innocent person. I mean, that's actually how we describe injustice. If you do this, innocent people will suffer. That's like the definition of when something is wrong. So why is it okay and okay with God that innocent Jesus suffers in our place? There are two things about Jesus that make all the difference in the world. For one thing, Jesus isn't just a random person. Jesus is one of us. Jesus is one of us. How many of you have ever taken young children into a furniture store? I have, and I'm sweating a little just thinking about it. Actually, my kids are always really well behaved in public, but I've heard from other families that it can be stressful. Because when you've got three kids and you're always on zone defense already, when you go into a furniture store, you're like 2.4 seconds away from a crash at all times. But let's say you're in a furniture store and my family walks in and surprisingly, unexpectedly, one of my kids knocks over a very expensive vase. And the manager sees it and comes over and says, well, someone's going to have to pay for this. And they walk up to you and they say, all right, pay up. What are you going to say? You're going to say, hang on a second. That's not fair. I'm not paying for that. I didn't break it. It was that handsome little boy over there who clearly gets his looks from his father. He did it. You you go talk to them. And that makes sense. In that situation, you are a random bystander. You're not related to what happened. But let's say the manager comes over to me and says, all right, pay up. Well, I heard it worked for you, so I'm going to use the same line. That's not fair. I didn't break the vase. It was that kid over there. How's that going to go for me? Well, not very well, because that kid is my kid. And as his parent, I am responsible, maybe not for his actions, but at least for paying the cost of the damages that he caused. As Americans and Westerners, we're used to thinking in terms of individual responsibility. 
We hate the idea that someone would be held responsible for something that somebody else did. And in many situations, most of the time, that is the right and just principle to apply. But there are certain kinds of relationships where it is right to actually transfer responsibility from one person to another within the community. One of those is with a parent and a child. Although sometimes it actually happens in a workplace. So if you're the head of a department in your workplace and one of your team members drops a ball, your boss is gonna come to you and say, give me an account for that. Why did that happen? And how are you gonna figure out how to fix it? Now you might not have personally done it, but you are responsible because you're the head of the department. It can happen in business deals. If you buy a company and that company is in debt, guess what? When you acquire the company, you acquire the debt also. It doesn't matter that it was somebody else who accrued that debt. You are now responsible for it. It can happen in a marriage. If you marry someone with a lot of financial debt, legally speaking, you might not be forced to pay it, but practically speaking, it's your problem as soon as you say, I do. There are certain kinds of relationships where it does make sense to transfer responsibility from the guilty party to the innocent party. And the reason Jesus can pay our punishment and take our penalty is because Jesus entered into one of those kinds of relationships with us. Jesus actually became one of us. This is one of the reasons it's so important that Jesus was fully human. As God, he became a complete and total 100% human being because he actually became one of us. And not just any old one of us. He actually became our representative. He became the head. He's our king. And as the king, he is responsible for his citizens. This is why when you read in Isaiah about the servant, if you read all the passages about the servant, you get this weird tension. Sometimes the servant is described as an individual separate from the people. And sometimes the servant is described almost as the embodiment of the people as a whole. But that's who the servant is. The servant is an individual who represents and takes responsibility for all of the people. That's the reason why you get this interesting imagery you get in verses six and seven. It says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Verse six describes you and me. Describes us as sheep who have wandered off and are creating all sorts of trouble for ourselves. But in verse seven, the imagery changes a little bit. It's no longer us who are being described as sheep, but the servant. Jesus has become one of the sheep. And not just any sheep. He is the lamb being led to the slaughter. He he is the sheep who is taking responsibility for the sins of the entire flock. The reason Jesus can be punished in our place is because he is one of us. He is our representative. But it's not just that he is one of us. Jesus was also willing. He was also willing to do it. Look again at verse seven. Notice how it says he was silent. And twice it says he did not open his mouth. Jesus could have objected. He could have called a halt to the entire thing. If you read the gospels, you read the story of his life, you see that there are all sorts of times on the march towards the cross when Jesus could have said, I'm done. This is where it ends, right here. At one point, Jesus actually says, no one takes my life from me. Now, if you had seen the cross, you would have said, someone is taking his life. 
But he insists, he says, I lay it down of my own accord. At another time, he says, if I wanted to, I could summon 12 legions of angels and they would defend me. The entire time, Jesus was in control. No one was forcing him. No one was coercing him. And that freedom is so important because it's what makes Jesus's love sacrificial love. I don't know if you heard the news story about the Italian priest who died of coronavirus. It's an amazing story. He he was 72 years old and his congregation actually pooled money together to buy him a ventilator that he needed. But while he was in the hospital, he heard about a younger patient and she was dying and she didn't have a ventilator. And so he said, she's got so much more life ahead of her than I do. Give her the ventilator so that she'll live. I'll take my chances. And he died. It's an absolutely beautiful act. And when you hear that, you don't think, oh, what injustice. How could they possibly take that from an innocent man like that? You think, what a hero. I wish there were more people in the world who did what he did who could make those sorts of choices for other people. Now, it's a beautiful story, amazing story. The only problem is it didn't actually happen. Turned out not to be true. And I was so frustrated when I heard about that. And not just because I wanted to use it in my Good Friday sermon, but also because I wanted to believe, I wanted to know that there are those kinds of people in the world. Don't don't you want to know that? I I mean, there's a reason why that story went viral. It's because all of us want to know that kind of action is possible. That kind of love is out there in the world. And not just that that love is out there. We also want to know that maybe there's someone in the world who could love me like that. Someone who would be willing to sacrifice so that I could live. Turns out the good news in Jesus is that the story is actually true. And it's actually true for you. See, Jesus loved us that way. Before the world was made, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they made a plan. They knew that if they made the world, that human beings would sin and we would bring guilt and suffering and death upon ourselves. And the Son knew as they were planning this before the world was made, that that if they were to make the world and he was going to save the world, that it would mean him becoming one of us and taking responsibility for a mess he didn't make. And that would mean he would suffer and die. And what did he do? He decided it's still worth making them. It's still worth saving them. I will do it. No one is forcing me to, but I am willing to do it because I love them. So we see that the cross was not an accident. The cross wasn't something that just happened to Jesus. At the cross, we see the father's will and the son's willingness intersect. But that brings up the question, what could possibly have been worth so great a cost? We're going to look at the last part of our passage, which picks up at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 
So what was it that was worth such a great cost as the cross? It was his reward and our justification. And here we find the beautiful message of the gospel, which is that Jesus shares his reward with us. In fact, the entire reason that you and I are justified is because Jesus gives us this reward. Uh, There's a lot packed into these three short verses, but I'm going to highlight just three rewards that Jesus earns and what happens when he gives us those things. So first, Isaiah says in, in verse 10, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And so we see that Jesus, through his death, creates a family. One of the rewards that Jesus had his eyes set on and endured the cross for was creating a family out of the stranger and the sinner, the lost and the lonely, the forgotten and the forsaken, to bring those people into unity. And when Jesus shares that reward with us, what that means for you and me is that we are adopted. And so the writers in the New Testament, they call us to cast our eyes on this truth, to marvel at it. And so we read things like, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. So are you looking this Good Friday for a place to belong? Because Good Friday is the beginning of this stranger becoming family. Second, Isaiah goes on to say in verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So the second reward that Jesus earns at the cross is this. Through his death, Jesus defeats death. So Isaiah paints this grim and horrific picture of the suffering and death of this servant, only to then say, but for this servant, death is not the end. Death will not keep him down. After death, he will see life. But we ask, how can somebody be pierced and crushed and assigned a grave with the wicked only to then see life? And the answer? Well, it's spoiler alert, right, church? Sunday is around the corner. Resurrection is coming. The tomb is empty. The servant didn't stay dead. And when Jesus shares this reward with us, what it means is that we too come to life. You and I, who are naturally dead in our transgressions, are made alive in Christ. So friend, are you looking to escape the power and the fear of death? Because Good Friday is the time when dead people are brought to life. Third, Isaiah says in verse 12, Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. So we see that Jesus, as a reward, gets glory because he willingly laid down his life. And now he is exalted. He has a name that is above every name. But again, this is not something that Jesus keeps to himself. He shares the reward with us, which means that you and I are exalted too. It says, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Like how crazy is this? Jesus is rewarded with glory for saving wretched sinners like you and me. And then he turns around and shares that reward too. Friends, God loves you so much. And out of that love, he gives and gives and gives to you. Are you looking for significance and dignity, and purpose. Good Friday is the beginning of the sinner being glorified and the lowly being lifted high. 
So Good Friday is the beginning of family and life and glory. But as good as these things are, they are actually not the point that Isaiah is trying to make. The whole point of Isaiah and the whole point of Good Friday is not that we are to look to the things that we get, but rather to look past those things to the one who gives them. Uh, this week in my house, the shoemate household, there was one day where the time in the afternoon came for Keller to have some screen time. So I asked him, uh, what movie do you want to watch? And he looks at me without blinking and says, The Grinch. It's April. So I say, hey buddy, it's April. The Grinch? He says, The Grinch. Doesn't matter to him. Apparently when you have a global pandemic and you're a few weeks in, trapped in your house, all notions of what's seasonally appropriate go right out the window. So he chooses The Grinch. And he chooses the 2018 version, which features Benedict Cumberbatch, because... As we all know, if you have a good thing and then you add Benedict Cumberbatch, it becomes a great thing. So here we are watching Benedict Cumberbatch play the Grinch. And at the very end of the movie, we encounter one of those plot twists that Eric mentions at the beginning. See, the Grinch has stolen Christmas successfully, but then he has this pain and regret and remorse. And so he gives everything back, but then retreats back to his house at the top of the mountain outside the city. But then Cindy Lou Who comes looking for him. And she makes her way up the mountain by herself, and she knocks at his door and introduces herself. She says, hey, Mr. Grinch, do you remember me? And he, he says, yes. And she says, I want to come today to invite you to Christmas dinner at my house. And he said, what? but I stole, your, I stole your gifts. She goes, I know. He goes, I, I stole your trees. She goes, yep. And he says, I stole your entire Christmas. She goes, I know, but we wanted to invite you anyway. And then he looks at her with this confused look and he says, but why? And she says, because you have been alone long enough. In, in an act of profound grace and kindness, Cindy Lou who invites the Grinch to participate in the joy of the very thing that he had tried to take down. And, and then the movie cuts to later when the Grinch arrives at Cindy Lou Who's house and there's all kinds of family and friends and, and there's food everywhere and presents galore and he's given a seat at the head of the table and Cindy's mom hands him a fork and a knife to give him the honors of cutting the roast beast. Now what if at that moment the Grinch had dug into the food and, and began shoveling it down and opening the presents and, and neglecting all of the people who were around him as if he was the only one there? We'd say he missed the entire point. So of course that's not what happens. What happens instead is he puts down the fork and the knife and he looks at Cindy Lou Who's mom and he says, Ma'am, your daughter's kindness has changed my life. At that moment, the Grinch was not focused on the gifts that he had been given. His heart was captured by the person who invited him into the joy of the very thing that he had tried to tear down. And the Grinch confronts us with this question, who would do this kind of thing for such a person? When we reflect on Good Friday and all of the rewards that Jesus earns and then shares with us, at some point our response shifts from how amazing are these gifts to how amazing is a person like that who would give them? Our attention says, shifts away from, yes, these are good things, to the one that says, you, you, the one who gives them, deserve my attention, my adoration. 
This is why the Apostle Paul can say, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything to be lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. In fact, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. You see, friends, Jesus is not the means to the prize. Jesus is the prize. See, the gospel is not the good news that God gives us good things. The gospel is that in Christ, God gives us himself. So Jesus offers us good things. He gifts us with family and life and glory. But he also offers us himself. And when he does, we take hold of him by faith. Verse 11 says, By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. A few minutes ago, we sang a Christ Community Church original song, which uh, has the words, you see me, you know me, you know who I am. But do you see him? Do you know him, the one who hung on the cross for you? And not just intellectually. When the Bible speaks of knowing God, it means a sincere and trust-filled knowledge. So do you trust him? Do you trust the God who is willing to die for you? Because it just might be the key that unlocks what you're looking for. It just might be the key that unlocks who you're looking for.